Good morning, everyone, and welcome again to In Town Church. We're glad to have you in worship with us. Would you uh, pray with me as we get started on our sermon? Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the good news of the Advent season, the good news of Christmas, that you made your home here among us, that you didn't stand far off from our pain, our woundedness, our hurts, our sadness, but you came and bore them for us. Lord, I pray that just as we celebrate your coming into our midst, into our presence 2,000 years ago, that we would be able to celebrate you coming into our presence again this morning. Would you come by your spirit? Would you make your home in our hearts? Lord, wherever we're coming from this morning, whatever our questions are, whatever our doubts are, whatever our hurts are from previous experiences with Christianity, Lord, I pray that you would be the one we see, that you would get behind those wounds, those scars, get behind our sin. Let us see you for who you are. Lord Jesus, would you be king over this church? Would you be king over each of our individual lives? And Lord, let today be a time of great celebration, of worship. Lord, we thank you again for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. You may have heard of uh, Daniel Borston. He's a, a very famous uh, historian. He was also librarian of Congress for many years in the 20th century. But he wrote a number of books uh, that were more social commentary than history, and one of them was called The Image, and it was written in 1962. And even way back then, he began to predict some of the things that we would talk about now as virtual reality, of hyper-reality, of our inability to distinguish something that is real and thus important and something that is just ephemeral and insignificant. And I wanted to quote from, for, from this book. In the first page, he opens this book uh, and gives an assessment of sort of the root cause of this. Where does this come from? And he refers to it as a lostness, as an emptiness, as a, a longing for something else. He says, we pick up our newspaper at breakfast. This was 1962, after all. When we pick up our newspaper at breakfast, we demand that it brings us momentous events since the night before. We turn on the car radio as we drive to work and expect news to have occurred since the morning paper went to press. In the evening, we expect our house not only to shelter us, but to relax us, to dignify us to encompass us with soft music and interesting hobbies, to be a playground, a theater, and a bar. We expect our two-week vacation to be romantic, exotic, cheap, and effortless. We expect a faraway atmosphere if we go to a nearby place, and we expect everything to be relaxing, sanitary, and Americanized if we go to a faraway place. We expect the contradictory and the impossible. We expect compact cars which are spacious, luxurious cars which are economical. We expect to be rich and charitable, powerful and merciful, kind and competitive. We expect to eat and stay thin, to be constantly on the move and ever more neighborly, to go to a church of our choice and yet feel its guiding power over us, to revere God and to be God. Never have people been more the masters of their environment, yet never has a people 
felt more deceived and disappointed. Wherever you're coming from this morning, however you parse spiritual reality, we're all familiar with this sort of longing, this sort of disappointment about the way things are. Maybe in our own lives, maybe in our spouse's lives, in our children's lives, in our political lives, and even in our church and in our spiritual longing. And as Steve referred uh, last week to the fact that this happens even more so during the holidays. There's this great gap between our expectations and what we want to see happen as we come around the table and what we actually experience. Zechariah is pointing at a great gap between what is and what should be. The nation of Israel, God's people, they've been exiled. They've been carted off to other countries. The Assyrians came in and partly conquered Israel, then the Babylonians, and then the Persians. And they had undergone 200 years of exile and captivity. The king of Persia, however, Xerxes, amazingly welcomes them back to their homeland, sends them back, gives them permission to go back and rebuild the walls around Jerusalem, rebuild the city, and rebuild their temple. It's remarkable that a a foreign king who had captured them would give them this permission. But when Zechariah is writing, this was decades ago that they were given permission to do this. And so the city, the temple, is still a far cry from what they want it to be. And Zechariah has this vision of building a renewed city, building things the way that they should be. Now, this at this point is probably around 2,500 years ago, and yet it's awfully relevant because we understand where Zechariah is coming from, because we have this sense of longing towards the way that things should be, the way things we want them to be. The product that Apple told us was going to change everything didn't really. The new boss at work had a promising start, and now things are back the same as they've always been. The church sounded so great when I first started attending, and now it just seems kind of blah. I became a Christian, and yet life still seems much the same. It's pretty sad. It's pretty monotonous, maybe more so. What I want you to hear this morning from this text is that God himself understands your longings. He doesn't sit dispassionately by, observing things unfold, but he too has a longing for his creation, to be made new, and for all of the potentialities that are resonant in this world and in your life come to full fruition. And he's been sending prophets throughout the ages, and no more so than in his son, the prophet Jesus, to say, I see, I feel, and I'm present with you in your sorrow and in your joy. He sends us these prophecies to help us put our sorrow and our joy in context. That our sorrow, our personal sorrow, helps us to see that this world will never be enough to fully satisfy our longing. And our joy, as great as it may be, only hints at what's to come. We find ourselves wrapped up in this story, in this prophecy, 
And we, because we can begin to understand that God's longings and our longings actually coincide. Talks about longing. What does this passage say about longing? It tells us how to long for God's healing presence, how to long for God's beautiful city, and how to long for God's gracious forgiveness. Now, don't panic. I'm not just now starting a full three-point sermon. This sermon's actually much shorter than normal. These are, we're doing homilies during the Advent season. So this is more just a couple of meditations and reflections. But first of all, longing for God's healing presence. These exiles, Israel returns home to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, to reconstruct the temple. But things weren't moving very quickly. They had gotten bogged down. They'd had lots of arguments. And there were those that were hearing this prophecy from Zechariah that were still alive from the time of exile. It was a couple of decades, maybe many decades, but there were people still around in Zechariah's time that had experienced that traumatic sense of abandonment, abandonment from God, that had lost their livelihood that had been carted off to a foreign land, maybe had their families split up. And three times God promises these people that he will be with them, that he will come and dwell in their midst. Verse 10 says, Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming, and I will live among you, declares the Lord. You see, as they look around and saw the still destructed ruins of this once great nation, he says that he will be the one that changes this city from pitiful to glorious. That he would say to them, that he would be the one that would declare that they are not forsaken and abandoned any longer, but they are welcomed and they are loved by God himself. That he would say that the community is no longer vulnerable but that they are secure and protected by him, by his power. In other words, he would change the world by entering into the world. Now, as we read these prophecies, they typically have near and far meanings. The near meaning of this prophecy is that the temple will, in fact, be rebuilt, that the the city will be reestablished. And we see historically that that takes place over time. But there's also far meanings that this prophecy has much greater implications that we can tap into that apply directly to you and I, as far-fetched as that may sound to some of you. What we see is that there's this far implication that God will be with his people. And as Christians, we celebrate this time of Advent as recognizing that that begins to take place even more so in the person of Jesus, the prophet Jesus that comes, that he is God becoming present again with his people in a fuller way, that Mary becomes pregnant. And what does the angel say to her? We'll read this passage next week, that you will name him Emmanuel, God with us that God takes on human flesh, that he can walk around among us, that he can live beside us, that he can experience our sorrow, that he can suffer with us and on behalf of us. 
And so when the time was right, this baby that is born to be a king drops his kingly guard and allows himself to be carted off into a far greater exile than Israel had ever known. He walked to the cross, stretched out his arms, and says, This is for you. God himself is with you in the person of Jesus. God himself is dying on your behalf. There's near and far meaning to the prophecy. There's near and far implications. Near, right now, you, because of this truth, can know that you're not alone in the world, that you're not alone in your sense of abandonment, that you're not alone in your pain, that God himself has felt what you are going through. You can know that you're not alone in this world and that that the center of the universe is an enormous, incomprehensible love that's pointed right at you. He says, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. Why did he want to protect Israel? Because he was madly in love with her. He was madly in love with his people. And if anyone messes with my people, it's like poking me in the eye because they are the apple of my eye. And then the far implications is that your sorrows and your longings aren't without meaning, that there's this still coming day of the Lord, that Jesus came and brought the presence of God into the world. And yet as he went home to be with his father yet again, said there will be a coming day that is even greater than this day that will give your sorrow and your joy meaning and eternal significance. There's a still coming day where God will dwell more fully with his people. In verse 5, it says, And I myself will be a wall of fire around it. You see, the city doesn't need walls. That would be terrible in the ancient Near East. It left you vulnerable to attack from those that wanted to come in and take you captive. But he says, This city will need no walls because I will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord. And I will be its glory within The beauty of the city, the glory of the city will be that it recognizes God's presence and exalts him for being present in their world. Zechariah is describing a beautiful city, one that we would all love to live in. It's not defined by its boundaries. There are no walls so that the goodness of God can overflow to all people and bring all nations in. That his love overflows, not just into the nation of Israel, but overflows out of it to all people, to anyone who will receive it. It's ethnically and racially diverse. There's equality for all. It's even pet friendly. The animals are streaming into it. It's a very Portland kind of city. It's a place that we would love to live. The human judgments about what matters, what makes you significant, what gives you meaning. You see, fall down. They fall apart because what gives you meaning as you live in this city is that you have been brought near by God, that he is the one that provides you security and significance. It is not your race. It's not your ethnicity. It's not your economic status. It's not your background. It's not your family. It's who God says you are. 
And what he says is that you are the apple of his eye, so come in and live in this city where you can dwell with me. We long for God's beautiful city. And we long also, finally, for God's gracious forgiveness. Advent, as you know, or at least now starting to pick up on, as you've come the last few weeks, is a celebration of the incarnation, the inbreaking of God into our, wor- into our world, that God takes up resonance in a human body and comes and walks among us. God is born as a baby to be eventually nailed to a tree, to be sat- Whoa. To be in such a way that your debt is paid down that your debt is erased. Now, maybe that seems far-fetched to you. Maybe it seems a bit severe that Jesus would be crucified for you, for your sin. But remember that any type of forgiveness involves paying down a debt. You can demand that someone else pay down the debt when you're offended. You can hold a debt over them until they work it off. You can demand that they make amends. You can hold things over over them until they're nice to you long enough and hard enough to offset their offense. That's not forgiveness. But that's making the other person pay down a debt. Or we can choose to let go of it. We can choose to pay it ourselves, to use kind words instead of hurtful words towards someone who has offended or hurt us. You can pray for them and celebrate the good things that come to them. In other words, you set them free by paying down that debt. Someone has to pay it. It's just a matter of who you choose to pay. You can make the other person pay, or you can pay it. And what the Incarnation says, what Advent says, is that there is a debt that is owed that God doesn't cause you and demand of you that you pay it. He says, I will pay it. I will take on your debt so that you will never have to think about it again. Forgiveness always comes at a price. Forgiveness always costs someone. And in this story, we see that forgiveness costs God enormously. He says in verse 12 that the Lord will inherit Judah. His glorious inheritance, the thing that he looks forward to, is his people coming to him and flowing into this eternal city as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. You see, forgiveness comes at a price because what God has to do is forgive over and over and over and choose again and again to pay down your debt and my debt. It's like a spouse who is committed to being in their marriage and says, despite all the pain that you've caused me, despite the sleepless nights, despite all of the hurtful comments, I choose you again. I choose to stay with you. And that's what God is saying here, is that his inheritance, what he looks forward to is the time where he will be fully united with his people. And he chooses them in spite of their sin over and over What does this mean for you and I as we continue celebrating Advent? Is that you you need to personalize this. That as it concerns the way that God thinks of you, 
He doesn't want anyone else. That God doesn't pine for other lovers. That God doesn't say of you, I wish you were like that person over there. That God doesn't love you because you're more attractive, because you have it all together, because you're more obedient than the person next to you. The the incredible reality is that he wants you as you are right now, that he wants you to come in and be made new. He longs to inherit not perfect people, but sinful, broken people who blow it all the time. It's such a strange wish for God to have that he could choose anyone and he doesn't choose the good, powerful people, the people who are more beautiful, the people who are greater in significance. He chooses people like us. He chooses sinners. He chooses those who will come to him and say, Dear Father, would you have me again? Would you forgive my sin again? In fact, he says it emphatically. He says, come, come, flee from the land of the north. Come, Zion, escape. Friends, this morning is an opportunity. It's an invitation. It's an emphatic invitation to flee from whatever it is that's enslaving you, that's keeping you where you are, that's keeping you bogged down in your own sin, It's keeping you self-referential. Flee from what enslaves you and run into the presence of God. The good news of Advent, the good news of Christmas is that coming into the presence of God could be utterly terrifying. It could be like coming to the principal's office, but it's not. Instead, running to him is running to healing. It's running to forgiveness. It's running to renewal, and it's running to the very end of your sin, that it doesn't mark you any longer. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this hopeful message would be the reality for us, that we would take hold of this offer of forgiveness, that we would take hold of your son Jesus, that he would be our significance, that he would be our idol, he would be our God and King. Lord, as we prepare to come to the table, I pray that you would let us sense your presence. Let us know that you're with us and let us walk towards you just as you've walked towards us in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to take just a few moments as we come to the table to make a a confession of faith, a profession of faith, of what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be a Christian, what we as a church believe about the gospel. And so if you're willing and you're able, would you stand with me as we confess our faith using 1 Timothy 3? Christian, what do you believe? Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in a body was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Thank you. You may be seated.
As we come to the table, we see a depiction of the incarnation that Jesus took on flesh on your behalf and on my behalf. And as we eat of this bread and we drink of this wine, by miracle and great mystery, we actually commune with Jesus himself, that he feeds his people with this meal. He draws you closer to him, and he draws you closer to one another. And so if you're a Christian who's been baptized into this faith, into this understanding of what it means to know and love Jesus, then come participate in this meal with all of those who follow Jesus here at In Town. Let's pray for our meal. Father, we are grateful for this time to be together, to be made one with you and one with one another. This is miracle. This is a miraculous, mysterious event, and we are utterly dependent upon you to make that happen, to pull that off, because we are a rebellious people. We go our own way. We choose things that are best for ourselves. We neglect the call of discipleship, the call of meeting the needs of those next to us. And so, Father, would you not only forgive us, not only heal us, but would you change us? Would you make us more into the people that you want us to be? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.